0: Section three of Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. Sea Change Part Two The Grave. In the morning the storm was still fierce. Clouds streamed across a sky that bent lower and lower towards the aspiring sea blanched with foam. There was little light and the rectory parlour looked grim and wintry when sir graham and uniac met there at breakfast-time the clergyman was pale and seemed strangely discomforted and at first unable to be natural he greeted his guest with a forcible and yet flickering note of cheerfulness abrupt and unsympathetic as he sat down behind the steaming coffee-pot the painter scarcely responded he was still attentive to the storm he ate very little "'You slept?' asked Uniacke. presently. "'Only for a short time, towards dawn. "'I sat at my window most of the night. "'At your window?' Uniacke said uneasily. "'Yes, somebody—a man, I suppose it must have been the skipper— "'came out from the shadow of this house soon after I went to my bedroom, "'and stole to that grave by the churchyard wall.' "'Really?' said Uniacke. "'Did he stay there?' for some time, bending down. It seemed to me as if he were at some work, some task. Or perhaps he was only praying in his mad way, poor fellow. Praying, yes, yes, very likely. A little more coffee? No, thank you. The odd thing was that, after a while, he ceased and returned to this house. One might have thought it was his home. You could not see if it was the skipper?" No, the figure was too vague in the faint stormy light. But it must have been he. Who else would be out at such a time, in such a night? He never heeds the weather, said Uniak. His pale face had suddenly flushed scarlet, and he felt a pricking as of needles in his body. It seemed to him that he was transparent, like a thing of glass, and that his guest must be able to see not merely the trouble of his soul, but the fact that was its cause— and the painter did now begin to observe his host's unusual agitation. "'And you, your night?' he asked. "'I did not sleep at all,' said Uniacke quickly, telling the truth with a childish sense of relief. "'I was excited.' "'Excited?' said Sir Graham. "'The unwanted exercise of conversation. "'You forget that I am generally a lonely man,' said the clergyman, once more drawn into the sin of subterfuge and scorching in it almost like a soul in hell. He got up from the breakfast-table feeling strangely unhappy, and weighed down with guilt. Yet, as he looked at the painter's worn face and hollow eyes, his heart murmured, perhaps deceitfully, "'You are justified.' "'I must go out, I must go into the village,' he said. "'In this weather? We islanders think nothing of it. We pursue our business though the heavens crack and the sea touches the clouds.' he went out hurriedly, and with the air of a man painfully abashed. Once beyond the churchyard, in the plow of the island road, he continued his tormented reverie of the night. Never before had he done evil that good might come. He had never supposed that good could come out of evil, but had deemed the supposition a monstrous and a deadly fallacy, to be combated, to be struck down to the dust." Even now he was chiefly conscious of a mental weakness in himself which had caused him to act as he had acted. He saw himself as one of those puny creatures whose so-called kind hearts lead them into follies, into crimes. Like many young men of virtuous life and ascetic habit, Uniacke was disposed to worship that which was uncompromising in human nature, the slight hardness which sometimes lurks like a kernel in the saint but he was emotional, he was full of pity. He desired to bandage the wounded world, to hush its cries of pain, to rock it to rest, even though he believed that suffering was its desert. And to the individual, more especially, he was very tender. Like a foolish woman, perhaps, he told himself to-day, as he walked on heavily in the wild wind, debating his deed of the night and its consequences. He had erased the name of Pringle from the stone that covered little Jack, the wonder-child, and he felt like a criminal. Yet he dreaded the sequel of a discovery by the painter, that his fears were well founded, that his sea-urchin had indeed been claimed by the hunger of the sea. Uniacke had worked in cities, and had seen much of sad men. He had learned to read them truly, for the most part, and to foresee clearly in many instances the end of their journeys." and his ministrations had taught him to comprehend the tragedies that arise from the terrible intimacy which exists between the body and its occupant, the soul. He could not tell, as a doctor might have been able to tell, whether the morbid condition into which Sir Graham had come was primarily due to ill health of the mind acting upon the body, or the reverse. But he felt nearly sure that if the painter's fears were proved suddenly to him to be well founded, he might not improbably fall into a condition of permanent melancholia, or even of active despair. Despite his apparent hopelessness, he was at present sustained by ignorance of the fate of little Jack. He did not actually know him dead. The knowledge would knock a prop from under him. He would fall into some dreadful abyss. The young clergyman's deceit alone held him back. But it might be discovered at any moment— one of the islanders might chance to observe the defacement of the tomb, a gossiping woman might mention to Sir Graham the name that had vanished. Yet these chances were remote. A drowned stranger boy is not to such folk as these, bred up in familiarity with violent death. Long ago they had ceased to talk of the schooner, flying fish, despite the presence of the mad skipper, despite the sound of church bells in the night. Fresh joys or tragedies absorbed them, For even the island world has its record. Time plants his footsteps upon the loneliest land, and the dwellers note his onward tour. Uniacke reckoned the chances for and against the discovery of his furtive act of mercy and its revelation to his guest. The latter outnumbered the former. Yet, Uniacke walked nervously as one on the verge of disaster. In the island cottages that morning, he bore himself uneasily in the presence of his simple-minded parishioners. Sitting beside an invalid whose transparent mind was dimly, but with ardent faith, set upon heaven, he felt hideously unfitted to point the way to that place into which no liar shall ever come. He was troubled, and prayed at random for the dying, thinking of the dead. At the same time he felt himself the chief of sinners, and knew that there was a devil in him capable of repeating his nocturnal act. Never before had he gathered so vital a knowledge of the complexity of man. He saw the threads of him all raveled up. When he finished his prayers at the bedside, the invalid watched him with the critical amazement of illness. He went out trembling and conscience-stricken. When he reached the churchyard on his way homewards, he saw Sir Graham moving among the graves. He had apparently just come out from the rectory, and was making his way to the low stone wall, over which shreds of foam were being blown by the wind. Uniacke hastened his steps, and hailed Sir Graham in a loud and harsh voice. He paused, and shading his eyes with his arched hands, gazed towards the road. Uniacke hurried through the narrow gate and joined his guest, who looked like a man startled out of some heavy reverie. "'Oh, it is you,' he said. "'Well, I—' you were going to watch the sea i know it is worth watching to-day come with me i'll take you to the point to the nigger the nigger the fishermen call the great black rock at the north end of the island by that name the sea must be breaking magnificently uniacke took hold of sir graham's arm and led him away compelling him almost as if he were a child they left the churchyard behind them and were soon in solitary country alone with the roar of wind and sea Branching presently from the road, they came into a narrow, scarcely perceptible track, winding downward over short grass drenched with moisture. The dull sheep scattered slowly from them on either side of the way. Presently the grass ceased at the edge of an immense, blunt rock, like a disfigured head that contemplated fixedly the white turmoil of the sea. "'A place for shipwreck,' said Sir Graham. "'A place of death.' Uniacke nodded. The painter swept an arm towards the sea. What a graveyard! One would say the time had come for it to give up its dead, and it was passionately fighting against the immutable decree. Is Jack somewhere out there? He turned and fixed his eyes upon Uniacke's face. Uniacke's eyes fell. Is he? repeated Sir Graham. How can I tell? exclaimed Uniacke, almost with a sudden anger. Let us go back. Towards evening, the storm suddenly abated. A pale yellow light broke along the horizon almost as the primroses break out along the horizon of winter. The thin black spars of a hurrying vessel pointed to the illumination and vanished, leaving the memory of a tortured gesture from some sea thing. And as the yellow deepened to gold, the skipper set the church bells ringing. Sir Graham opened the parlour window wide and listened leaning out towards the graves. Uniac was behind him in the room. Vapour streamed up from the buffeted earth, which seemed panting for a repose it had not strength to gain. Ding-dong, ding-dong! The wild and faraway light grew to flame and faded to darkness. In the darkness the bells seemed clearer, for light deafens the imagination. Uniac felt a strange irritability coming upon him. He moved uneasily in his chair, watching the motionless, stretched figure of his guest. Presently he said, "'Sir Graham!' There was no reply. "'Sir Graham!' He got up, crossed the little room, and touched the shoulder of the dreamer. Sir Graham started sharply and turned a frowning face. "'What is it?' "'The atmosphere is very cold and damp after the storm. "'You wish me to shut the window, I beg your pardon?' He drew in and shut it, then moved to the door. "'You are going out?' said Uniacke uneasily. "'Yes.' "'I—I would not speak to the skipper if I were you. He is happier when he is let quite alone. "'I want to see him. I want him to sit for me.' "'To sit!' Uniacke repeated with an accent almost of horror. "'Yes,' said Sir Graham doggedly. I HAVE A GREAT PICTURE IN MY MIND. BUT THE SKIPPER'S MEETING WITH HIS DROWNED COMRADES IN THAT BELFRY TOWER. HE WILL STAND WITH THE ROPES DROPPING FROM HIS HANDS, TRIUMPH IN HIS EYES. THEY WILL BE COMING UP OUT OF THE DARKNESS, GRAY MEN, AND DRIPPING FROM THE SEA WITH DEAD EYES AND HANGING LIPS. AND FIRST AMONG THEM WILL BE MY WONDER-CHILD on whom will fall a ray of light from a wild moon half seen through the narrow slit of the deep-set window no no what do you say your wonder child must not be there why should he he is alive you think so uniacke made no reply i say do you think so how can i know it is impossible but yes i think so The clergyman turned away. A sickness of the conscience overtook him like physical pain. Sir Graham was by the door with his hand upon it. And yet, he said, you do not believe in intuitions. Nothing tells you whether that woman you loved is dead or living. You said that. Nothing. Then what should tell you whether Jack is dead or living? He turned and went out. Presently Uniac saw his dark figure pass like a shadow across the square of the window. The night grew more quiet by slow degrees. The hush after the storm increased, and to the young clergyman's unquiet nerves it seemed like a crescendo in music instead of like a diminuendo, as sometimes seems the falling to sleep of a man to a man who cannot sleep. The noise of the storm had been softer than the sound of this increasing silence in which the church bells presently died away. Uniac was consumed by an apprehension that was almost like the keen tooth of jealousy, for he knew that the skipper had ceased from his patient task, and Sir Graham did not return. He imagined a colloquy, but the skipper's madness would preserve the secret which he no longer knew and therefore could not reveal. He made the bells call Jack Pringle. He would never point to the defaced grave and say, Jack Pringle lies beneath this stone. And yet sanity might, perhaps, return a rush of knowledge of the past and recognition of its tragedy. Uniacke took his hat and went to the door. He stood out on the steps. Seabirds were crying the sound of the sea withdrew moment by moment as if it were stealing furtively away behind in the rectory passage the servant clattered as she brought in the supper sir graham uniacke called suddenly sir graham yes the voice came from somewhere in the shadow of the church will you not come in supper is ready in a moment the painter came out of the gloom "'That churchyard draws me,' he said, mounting the step. "'You saw the skipper?' "'Yes, leaving.' "'Did he speak to you?' "'Not a word.' The clergyman breathed a sigh of relief. In the evening, Uniac turned his pipe two or three times in his fingers and said, looking down, "'That picture of yours?' "'Yes. What of it?' "'You will paint it in London, I suppose.' "'How can I do that?' "'The imagination of it came to me here, is sustained and quickened by these surroundings. "'You mean to paint it here?' the clergyman faltered. "'Sir Graham was evidently struck by his host's air of painful discomfiture. "'I beg your pardon,' he said hastily. "'Of course I do not mean to inflict myself upon your kind hospitality while I am working. "'I shall return to the inn.' "'Uniac flushed red at being so misunderstood.' I cannot let you do that. No, no. Honestly, my question was only prompted by—by a thought. Yes? Do not think me impertinent, but really a regard for you has grown up in me since you have allowed me to know you—a great regard, indeed. Thank you, thank you, Uniac, said the painter, obviously moved. And it has struck me that in your present condition of health, and seeing that your mind is pursued by these these melancholy sea thoughts and imaginings it might be safer better for you to be in a place less desolate less preyed upon by the sea that is all believe me that is all he spoke the last words with the peculiar insistence and almost declamatory fervour of the liar but he was now embarked upon deceit and must crowd all sail and with the utterance of his lie "'He took an abrupt resolution. "'Let us go away together somewhere,' he exclaimed with a brightening face. "'I need a holiday. "'I will get a brother clergyman to come over from the mainland and take my services. "'You ask me some day to return your visit. "'I accept your invitation here and now. "'Let me come with you to London.' "'Sir Graham shook his head. "'You put me in the position of an inhospitable man,' he said. "'In the future you must come to me.' I look forward to that. I depend upon it. But I cannot go to London at present. My house, my studio, are become loathsome to me. The very street in which I live echoes with childish footsteps. I cannot be there. Sir Graham, you must learn to look upon your past act in a different light. If you do not, your power of usefulness in the world will be crushed, the clergyman spoke with an intense earnestness. His sense of his own increasing unworthiness, the fighting sense of the necessity laid upon him, to be unworthy for this sick man's sake tormented him, set his heart in a sea of trouble. He strove to escape out of it by mental exertion. His eyes shone with unnatural fervor as he went on. "'When you first told me your story, I thought this thing weighed upon you unnecessarily.' Now I see more and more clearly that your unnatural misery over a very natural act springs from ill health. It is your body which you confuse with your conscience. Your remorse is a disease removable by medicine, by a particular kind of air or scene, by waters even it may be, or by hard exercise, or by a voyage.' "'A voyage!' cried Sir Graham bitterly. "'Well, well, by such means, I would say, as to come to a doctor's mind. "'You labour under the yoke of the body.' "'Do you think that, whenever your conscience says, "'You have done wrong? Tell me.' Uniacke, who had got up in his excitement, "'recoiled at these words, which struck him hard. "'I—I—' he almost stammered. "'What have I got to do with it?' "'I ask you to judge yourself.' to put yourself in my place, that is all. Do you tell me that all workings of conscience are due to obscure bodily causes? How how could I? No, but yours are not. They hurt my body. They do not come from my body's hurt. And they increase upon me in this place. Yes, they increase upon me. I knew it, cried Uniacke. "'Why is that?' said Sir Graham, with a melancholy accent. "'I feel, I begin to feel, that there must be some powerful reason. Yes, in this island.' "'There cannot be. Leave it! Leave it!' "'I am held here.' "'By what?' "'Something intangible, invisible. "'Nothing, then.' "'All-powerful. I cannot go. "'If I would go, I cannot. "'Perhaps perhaps jack is coming here the painter's eyes were blazing uniac felt himself turn cold jack coming here he said harshly nonsense sir graham nobody ever comes here dead bodies come on the breast of the sea the painter looked towards the window putting himself into an attitude of horrible expectation is it not so he asked in a voice that quivered slightly as if with an agitation he was trying to suppress. Uniacke made no reply. He was seized with a horror he had not known before. He recognized that the island influence mysteriously held his guest. After an interval he said abruptly, "'What is your doctor's name, did you say?' "'Did I ever say whom I had consulted?' said Sir Graham, almost with an invalid's ready suspicion, and peering at the clergyman under his thick eyebrows." "'Surely. But I forget things so easily,' said Uniacke calmly. "'Braybrook is the man, Cavendish Square. An interesting fellow. You may have heard of his book on the use of colour as a sort of physic in certain forms of illness.' "'I have. What sort of man is he?' "'Very small, very grey, very indecisive in manner.' "'Indecisive?' "'In manner.' "'in reality a man of infinite conviction. "'May I ask if you told him your story? "'The story of my body, naturally. "'One goes to a doctor to do that. "'And did that narrative satisfy him? "'Not at all. Not a bit. "'Well, and so?' "'I did not tell him my mental story. "'I explained to him that I suffered greatly from melancholy. "'That was all. "'I called it unreasoning melancholy. "'Why not? "'I knew he could do no more than put my body a little straight. "'He did his best.' "'I see,' said Uniacke slowly. "'That night, after Sir Graham had gone to bed, "'Uniacke came to a resolution. "'He decided to write to Dr. Braybrook, "'betray, for his guest's sake, his guest's confidence, "'and ask the great man's advice in the matter.' revealing to him the strange fact that fate had led the painter of the sea urchin to the very edge of the grave in which he slept so quietly no longer did uniacke hesitate or pause to ask himself why he permitted the sorrow of a stranger thus to control to upset his life and indeed is the man who tells us his sorrow a stranger to us Uniacke's creed taught him to be unselfish, taught him to concern himself in the afflictions of others. Already he had sinned, he had lied for this stricken man. He, a clergyman, had gone out in the night and had defaced a grave. All this lay heavy on his heart. His conscience smote him, and yet when he saw before him in the night the vision of this tortured man, he knew that he would repeat his sin if necessary. The next day was Sunday. He sat down and tried to think of the two sermons he had to preach. The sea lay very still on the Sabbath morning, still under a smooth and pathetic grey sky. The atmosphere seemed that of a winter fairyland. All the sea-birds were in hiding. Small waves licked the land like furtive tongues seeking some dainty food with sly desire. Across the short sea-grass the island children wound from school to church and the island lads gathered in knots to say nothing the whistling of a naughty fisherman attending to his nets unsabbatically pierced the still and magically cruel air with a painful sharpness people walked in silence without knowing why they did not care to speak and even the girls discreet in ribbons and shining boots thought less of kisses than they generally did on Sunday. The older people, sober by temperament, became sombre under the influence of sad, breathless sky and breathless waters. The coldness that lay in the bosom of nature soon found its way to the responsive bosom of humanity. It chilled Uniac in the pulpit, Sir Graham in the pew below. The one preached without heart, the other listened without emotion all this was in the morning but at evening nature stirred in her repose and turned with the abruptness of a born coquette to pageantry a light wind got up the waves were curved and threw up thin showers of ivory spray playfully along the rocks the sense of fairyland wrapped in ethereal silences quivered and broke like disturbed water and the gray womb of the sky swelled in the west To give up a sunset that became tragic in its crescendo of glory bursting forth in flame a narrow line of fire along the sea it pushed its way slowly up the sky against the tattered clouds a hidden host thrust forth their spears of gold and a wild rose-color descended upon the gentle sea and floated to the island bathing the rocks the grim and weather-beaten houses the stones of the churchyard with a radiance so delicate and yet so elfish that enchantment walked there till the night came down, and in the darkness the islanders moved on their way to church. The pageant was over, but it had stirred two imaginations. It blazed yet in two hearts. The shock of its coming after long hours of storm had stirred Uniacke and his guest strangely. AND THE FORMER, LEAVING IN THE RECTORY PARLOR THE SERMON HE HAD COMPOSED, PREACHED EXTEMPORÉ ON THE TEXT, IN THE EVENING THERE SHALL BE LIGHT. HE BEGAN RADIANTLY AND WITH FERVOUR, BUT SOME SPIRIT OF CONTRADICTION ENTERED HIS SOUL AS HE SPOKE, IMPELLING HIM TO A MORE SOMBRE MOOD THAT WAS YET NEVER COLD, BUT RATHER IMPASSIONED, FULL OF IMAGINATIVE DESPAIR. He was driven on to discourse of the men who will not see light, of the men who draw thick blinds to shut out light. And then he was led, by the egoism that so subtly guides even the best among men, to speak of those fools who, by fostering darkness, think to compel sunshine, as a man may mix dangerous chemicals in a laboratory, seeking to advance some cause of science, and die in the poisonous fumes of his own devilish brew. Can good, impulsive, and radiant come out of deliberate evil? Must not a man care first for his own soul, if he would heal the soul of even one other? Uniacke spoke with a strange and powerful despair on this subject. He ended in a profound sadness, and with the words of one scourged by doubts. There was a pause, the shuffle of moving feet. Then the voice of the clerk announcing the closing hymn. It was Lead Kindly Light, chosen by the harmonium player and submitted to Uniacke, who, however, had failed to notice that it was included in the list of hymns for the day. The clerk's voice struck on him like a blow. He stared down from the pulpit and met the upward gaze of his guest. Then he lay his cold hands on the wooden ledge of the pulpit and turned away his eyes, for he felt as if sir graham must understand the secret that lay in them the islanders sang the hymn lustily bending their heads over their books beneath the dull oil lamps that filled the church with a dingy yellow twilight alone at the back of the building the mad skipper stood up by the belfry door and stared straight before him as if he watched and uniacke's trouble increased "'seemed to walk in the familiar music which had been whistled by Jack Pringle "'as he swarmed to the masthead, or turned into his bunk at night far out at sea. "'Sir Graham had spoken of intuitions. "'Surely,' the clergyman thought, "'to-night he will feel the truth and my lie. "'To-night he will understand that it is useless to wait. "'That the wonder-child can never come to this island.' FOR HE CAME ON THE BREAST OF THE SEA LONG AGO, AND IF HE DOES NOT KNOW NOW, AT THIS MOMENT, WHILE THE ISLANDERS ARE SINGING, AND WITH THE MORN THOSE ANGEL-FACES SMILE, HOW WILL HE REGARD ME, WHO HAVE LIED TO HIM, AND HAVE PREACHED TO HIM, COWARD AND HYPOCRITE? FOR STILL THE EGOISM WAS IN Uniacke's HEART. THERE IS NO GREATER EGOIST THAN THE GOOD MAN WHO HAS SINNED AGAINST HIS NATURE. He sits down eternally to contemplate his own soul. When the hymn was over, Uniacke mechanically gave the blessing and knelt down, but he did not pray. His mind stood quite still all the time he was on his knees. He got up wearily, and as he made his way into the little vestry, he fancied that he heard behind him a sound as of someone tramping in sea-boots upon the rough church pavement. He looked round and saw the bland face of the clerk, who wore perpetually a little smile like that of a successful public entertainer. That evening he wrote to Dr. Braybrook. On the morrow Sir Graham began the first sketch for his picture, The Procession of the Drowned, to their faithful captain. Three mornings later, when Uniacke came to the breakfast-table, Sir Graham, who was down before him, handed to him a letter, the envelope of which was half torn open. "'It was put among mine,' he said, in apology, and, as the handwriting was perfectly familiar to me, I began to open it. "'Familiar?' said Uniac, taking the letter. "'Yes, it bears an exact resemblance to Dr. Braybrook's writing.' "'Oh!' said Uniac, laying the letter aside rather hastily. They sat down on either side of the table. "'You don't read your letter,' Sir Graham said, after two or three minutes had passed.' after breakfast i don't suppose it is anything important said the clergyman hastily sir graham said nothing more but drank his coffee and soon afterwards went off to his work then uniacke opened the letter cavendish square london december dear sir i read your letter about my former patient sir graham hamilton with great interest When he consulted me, I was fully aware that he was concealing from me some mental trouble, which reacted upon his bodily condition and tended to retard his complete recovery of health. However, a doctor cannot force the confidence of a patient, even in that patient's own interest, and I was therefore compelled to work in the dark, and to work without satisfaction to myself and lasting benefit to Sir Graham. You now let in a strange light upon the case— and I have little doubt what course would be the best to pursue in regard to the future. Sir Graham's nervous system has broken down so completely that, as often happens in nervous cases, his very nature seems to have changed. The energy, the remarkable self-confidence, the hopefulness, and power of looking forward, and of working for the future, which have placed him where he is, these have vanished. He is possessed by a fixed idea— and imagines that it is this fixed idea which has preyed upon him and broken him down but my knowledge of nervous complaints teaches me that the fixed idea follows on the weakening of the nervous system and seldom or never precedes it i find it is an effect and not a cause BUT IT IS A FACT THAT THE FIXED IDEA WHICH POSSESSES A MAN UNDER SUCH CIRCUMSTANCES IS OFTEN CONNECTED, AND CLOSELY, WITH THE ACTUAL CAUSE OF HIS ILLNESS. SIR GRAHAM HAMILTON IS SUFFERING FROM LONG AND HABITUAL OVERWORK IN CONNECTION WITH THE SEA, OVERWORK OF THE IMAGINATION OF THE PERCEPTIVE FACULTY, AND IN THE MERE MECHANICAL LABOR OF PUTTING ON CANVAS WHAT HE imagines AND WHAT HE PERCEIVES in consequence of this overstrain and subsequent breakdown he has become possessed by a fixed sea idea and traces all his wretchedness to this episode of the boy and the picture you will say i did not succeed in curing him because i did not discover what this fixed idea was how can that be if the idea comes from the illness and not the illness from the idea in reply i must inform you that a tragic idea once it is fixed in the mind of a man can and often does become in itself at last a more remote but effective cause of the prolonged continuance of the ill-health already started by some other agent it keeps the wound which it has not made open it is most important therefore that it should if possible be banished in the case of sir graham as in other cases your amiable deception has quite possibly averted a tragedy continue in it i counsel you the knowledge that his fears are well founded that the boy for whose fate he morbidly considers himself entirely responsible has in very truth been lost at sea and lies buried in the ground beneath his feet might in his present condition of invalidism be attended by most evil results some day it is quite possible that he may be able to learn all the facts with equanimity but this can only be later when long rest and change have accomplished their beneficent work it cannot certainly be now endeavour therefore to dissuade him from any sort of creative labour endeavour to persuade him to leave the island above all things do not let him know the truth It is a sad thing that a strong man of genius should be brought so low that he has to be treated with precautions almost suitable to a child. But to a doctor there are many more children in the world than a statistician might be able to number. I wish I could take a holiday and come to your assistance. Unfortunately, my duties tie me closely to town at the present. And, in any case, my presence might merely irritate and alarm our friend." Believe me faithfully yours, John Braybrooke. Uniacke read this letter and laid it down with a strange mingled feeling of relief and apprehension. The relief was a salve that touched his wounded conscience gently. If he had sinned, at least this physician's letter told him that by his sin he had accomplished something beneficent. And for the moment, self-condemnation ceased to scourge him. The apprehension that quickly beset him rose from the knowledge that Sir Graham was in danger so long as he was in the island. But how could he be persuaded to leave it? That was the problem. Uniacke's reverie over the letter was interrupted by the appearance of the painter. As he came into the room, the clergyman rather awkwardly thrust the doctor's letter into his pocket, and turned to his guest. "'In already, Sir Graham,' he said, with a strained attempt at ease of manner. "'Ah, work tires you.' Indeed, you should take a long holiday. He spoke, thinking of the doctor's words. I have not started work, the painter said. I've I've been looking at that grave by the church wall, the boy's grave. Oh, said Uniac with sudden coldness. Do you know, Uniak? It seems it seems to me that the gravestone has been defaced. Defaced Why what could make such an idea come to you? exclaimed the clergyman. Defaced but there is a gap in the inscription after the word Jack, the painter said slowly, fixing a piercing and morose glance on his companion. And it seems to me that some blunt instrument has been at work there. Oh, there was always a gap there, said Uniacke hastily, touching the letter that lay in his pocket, and feeling strangely as if the contact fortified that staggering pilgrim on the path of lies, his conscience. There was always a gap, "'It was a whim of the skipper's, a mad whim.' "'But I understood he was sane when his shipmate was buried. "'You said so.' "'Sane, yes, in comparison with what he is now. "'But one could not argue with him. "'He was distraught with grief.' "'Sir Graham looked at Uniacke with the heavy suspicion of a sick man, "'but he said nothing more on the subject. "'He turned as if to go out. "'Uniacke stopped him. "'You are going to paint?' "'Yes.' Again, Uniacke thought of the doctor's advice. "Sir Graham," he said, speaking with obvious hesitation, "I, I would not work. Why? You are not fit to bear any fatigue at present. Creation will inevitably retard your recovery. I am not ill in body, and work is the only panacea for a burdened mind. If it cannot bring me happiness, at least happiness." Uniacke interrupted. "'And what may not bring that? "'Why, Sir Graham, even death, "'should that be regarded as a curse? "'May not death bring the greatest happiness of all?' "'The painter's forehead contracted, "'but the clergyman continued "'with gathering eagerness and fervour. "'Often when I pray beside a little dead child, or, "'or a young lad, and hear the mother weeping, "'I feel more keenly than at any other time "'the fact that blessings descend upon the earth.' THE CHILD IS TAKEN IN INNOCENCE, THE LAD IS BEREFT OF THE POWER TO SIN, AND THEIR SOULS ARE SURELY AT PEACE. "'At peace,' said the painter heavily, "'yes, that is something. But the mother, the mother weeps, you say. Human love, the most beautiful thing in the world, must still be earthbound, must still be selfish. But, Sir Graham, I'll confess to you even this that on Sunday evening, when, after the service, we sang that hymn, Lead Kindly Light, I thought, would it not be a very beautiful thing if the body moldering beneath that stone in the churchyard yonder were indeed the body of—of your wonder-child? Uniac! Yes, yes, don't you remember how he looked up from his sordid misery to the rainbow? How can I ever forget it? Does that teach you nothing?' there was a silence then the painter said death may be beautiful but only after life has been beautiful for it is beautiful to live as jack would have lived is living somewhere interposed uniac quickly perhaps i can't tell but i hear the mother weeping i hear the mother weeping that night uniac lay long awake He heard the sea faintly. Was it not weeping too? It seemed to him in that dark hour as if one power alone was common to all people and to all things. The power to mourn. End of section 3